Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. What do you do with a good friend who's had a successful career in many fields, seems to be good at everything, and is interesting on a wide range of topics? Well, in my case, I bring him on my show. Richard S. Bodman, my polymath friend, founder of AT&T Ventures, now the VMS Group, has a vast range of experience in leadership and management roles, business strategy, capital markets, government, and technology all topics for today's show. Dick Bodman is also chairman of the Telecom Development Fund, Pure Thread Technologies, and Bodman Oil and Gas. He is also an executive committee member of the La Jolla Institute for Immunology and the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. Earlier in his career, he served as assistant secretary in the Department of Interior and as managing director, assistant director of the Office of Management and Budget. Dick graduated with a B.S. in engineering from Princeton University and holds a Master of Science from MIT. He is also a certified public accountant. Joining me to talk with Dick today is my frequent guest, author and economist John Tamney. John is the director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks and is the editor of Real Clear Markets and political economy editor for Forbes magazine. His books include The End of Work, who Needs the Fed, and the soon-to-be-published, They're Both Wrong. John, Dick, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Great to have you both here. Uh, Dick, you, we got on the show, we started talking before the show, that you, you say you've had 11 different careers. Uh, that's unusual. Well, it was in my day, but today it's not. But uh, When I started out many, many years ago, you usually started, and if you were okay, you stayed with the same company. Now, a lot of those companies haven't stayed, and people starting out today, uh, particularly in the entrepreneurial world, until they've failed once, the next investor doesn't think the person's learned anything. So it's a different world now. Would you, well, John, you talked about that in the end of work, and we've talked about that before, about in the venture capital field, failure is often a sign of uh, you're ready for your next big opportunity. Exactly. It's a, yeah, it's something, you're learning something, and you're learning quickly. But for you to have started so early, was this just curiosity that had you moving around, wanderlust? What do you think explains why you have had such a varied career? Well, I know how it started anyway. I, uh, when I was in high school, I drove to California from the East Coast with a friend of mine from California and said, if you come out and visit with me, you'll, you'll see why this is a great place. And so I did for six weeks. And I drove back alone, and when I got halfway across Wyoming, I said to myself, whatever I do, it's going to start in California. So that required the first move. I was at MIT at that time. And the only job offer I got uh, in California was with what is now Deloitte and, what is now Deloitte and Touche. It was Touche Ross then. And uh, I didn't, hadn't studied accounting particularly, uh, and I just took it. So... When I got there... So you um, got a job, you hadn't studied accounting, and you no. became an accountant. <laughs> well, certified. So I was uh, 
you start out in my day in that business, you sat in a big room with the other new people with a telephone book and a 10 key speed machine. I don't even know if you know what that is, but the 10 key speed machine. And you, you learn to type all the numbers without, without looking up, at the, looking at the numbers when you type them. And I sat there and I said, I think the names on the doors of this firm are probably the people who bring in the clients not the people that can run the 10-key speed machine the fastest. So I found out that uh, there was, was a collusive practice among the big accounting firms, maybe all of them, but you could not try to recruit as a client somebody who was somebody else's client. And that was my first lesson, that the companies that most enjoy being regulated are the ones that protest the much but have all the money so they can hire the best lawyers to get the best positions under the regulations. <laughs> anyway, I used to, I figured out that the big banks, five of the, ten large, five of the ten largest in the country of which were in San Francisco, didn't have audits. And so you could go talk to them. And nobody was. So when I was 23, I'd sneak out of the office couple of days a week and go wait, wait, call wait, on the, the CEOs. The big, the big banks did not have auditors? No. They had lots of auditors, but not public accountants. Really? Big banks were audited by the FDIC, by the controller of the currency, and the Federal Reserve. But they didn't have audits until they started entering into the race to build branches. They didn't have nationwide branching, or even many states didn't allow any branches like Illinois. And, but when they started to build branches, because California, I think, was one of the first to go statewide, and all the banks were trying to keep up with Bank of America, and they had to borrow money. And when you borrow money, the SEC, you need an audit. Mm -hmm. So that's how that all started. So you brought in the big banks as a client? No. I went around and talked to the chairman of the banks. They were, <laughs> they were willing to see me. Wow. And I said, uh, I'm an engineer. I know a little about computers. I am a CPA. Uh, and I work for a firm that's a very good one, and if you ever need an audit, please think of us. Well, your family was in the banking business. Yes, but uh, I never was. <laughs> How did you get into the door to these chairmen? What, well, what did you, I, what did you, I, did you I, speak to? Or? Actually, I think a couple of those chairmen knew, most of them knew my dad, because he mm -hmm. was an important banker at the time, but he was in Michigan, not out there. And, and bankers are quite polite. So if a young kid says, I want to see the chairman about something, they, I think they're more inclined to say yes than no. Anyway, uh, I had five of those meetings, and then one day one of the chairmen called, and he said, I don't get along with the guy that runs our computers. And I told the board that, and they said, what happens if he pulls the plug on the way out? And uh, I said, uh, can I meet this fellow? And uh, they let me meet him. He was brilliant. But basically, 50% of his vocabulary was speeds, feeds, and money. And I went back to the chairman and I said, I think I can fix this. This guy is very, very smart. And he said, okay, give it a shot. So I went back and I said, to the guy, never say speeds, feeds, or money again. And he said, I can stop the speeds and feeds, but I need money. And I said, 
spend it. Don't say anything about it. The bank can't operate without money. And one of the reasons the banks couldn't operate without, without uh, computers was that Bank of America had come out with a thing called Bank America, now Visa. And it allowed worldwide banking without building a branch. I don't even think Bank of America had figured that out at that time. So I told all these CEOs that that was a very important problem for them, that Bank of America was doing this. Anyway, I, I got a huge fee for that job that I did for that chairman. It was a million dollars. I was making about $7,500 a year, maybe maybe 10000 And uh, so then I went back to the office and started to... I, I was an auditor, but I decided that I wanted to work in consulting for the firm. And uh, then the banks, the five chairmen called me up and said, can we go to lunch? So I went to lunch. And they said, you've been talking about this Bank America. And I said, yeah, I have. And they said, well, you've convinced us. We're going to start something so, called so MasterCard. And you've got the business. So how old were you when you did this? Well, I started it at about 23, my first call. And I called for about a year. So then I was 24 when I got that first job. Somewhere on my 24th year, I So you're convening the chairman of the five <laughs> large banks. Five when of you're the, well, the when biggest one, Bank America, was not. Well, when you're, when you're 25 years old. Yeah, I talked with them when I was 23, yeah. Were you already really confident, or did these circumstances make you realize how well you were going to do? I've never been confident. I just do things. Uh -huh. I, I, I mean that. I, I didn't go around and say, I know I can do this, I know I can do this. But one thing I did know, I had a lot of curiosity, and I knew that you couldn't ever get anything done if you didn't sell it. Mm -hmm. So that, that was what got me started. But I never told the firm when I was out calling on the banks. Mm -hmm. What was the ultimate reaction from Touche Ross? Was there, was there pushback? Hey, you're too young. Uh, not really. Uh, because I went from having two people working for me when I went over to consulting or working with me to 44 people. And the biggest partner in the firm didn't have more, more than six or seven people working for him. So I became a, a, a problem both ways. If I lost a lot of money, it was going to really be expensive. And if I made a lot of money, it would be profitable. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. But, uh, so they made me a, a partner very early. So something I like, never asked them for anything. They just did it. Never, never having confidence. I'm looking some Bob Dylan. He was, you were contemporaries with Bob Dylan when he was coming up. So when you were recruiting the big banks, I guess he was starting out in Greenwich Village. He said something interesting. He said, you don't, you don't live your life by finding yourself. You live your life by creating yourself, by creating things. And it seems to me like your curiosity has always driven you to be in the business of creating something. Perhaps. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm serious about that. I, I, I don't know what... And I, I do listen to other people's ideas. Mm -hmm. And if they come back to me either in my head or somebody else brings them up two or three times, in a sense, it's like a sign to me that I should go get interested in it. So mm -hmm. that's one of the features of my life. Well, John, you've written your, your book on uh, the end of work. 
what what was the theory there, and how does it apply to what Dick is talking about? Uh, the theory there is that is that with automation and with economic growth, it doesn't kill jobs. The automation just makes allows us to specialize. Because let's say that we're on a, the three of us are on a desert island, uh, all working all the time. The addition of three people wouldn't put us out of work. It would just allow us to specialize a little bit more. And so with automation, that's trillions of hands theoretically doing things that we used to have to do. So now we can focus even more on what we love and are interested in. And so my take is that auto, robots and automation are the greatest friend the worker has ever had because it's going to create geniuses who did not exist before. Otherwise, we'd all be on the 10 key machine. Yeah, we, we, well, we, it's exactly, a good analogy. Exactly, as Dick points uh, out, that the what, things that we used to have to do that, that big minds had to do, and Dick obviously thought at the time, wait, that's not a good use of our time. No, and, but it was fun. <laughs> But think about what these, yeah. what this automation can right. do now. Uh, you're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Dick Bodman and John Tamney, and we're talking about how Dick's splendid career got off to a, a fast start. Uh, Dick, you've followed three rules, you said, or you've, you've evolved into thinking about three rules or three procedures you go through to make decisions, and you made some good ones. So what, what are those rules? I've made some bad ones, too. Well, well that, that's the first one. Too. <laughs> we all have. Uh, first one I mentioned was this following signs. It's probably not quite the right term for that because I don't see signs. But if something, if I start thinking about it and it comes back to me in real life, so like if somebody mentions your, your name, uh, and that happens three or four times, I start to say, I think I should get to know this guy or that subject or whatever this is. The second thing is uh, I think orthogonally. By that, if the three of us are sitting around this table or even five or six of us and we're trying to solve a problem, I have a tendency to come in from an acute angle down onto the table with an idea. Now, you're an engineer. Define orthogonal. If this is the plane, orthogonal is coming in from an angle like this. Okay. Not across the table like that with, mm -hmm. with us. So, uh, and I tend to think that way. And sometimes they're pretty good ideas. Sometimes they're good ideas and the others think it's crazy and sometimes it works out and everybody likes it. So that's, but that's, it's just a characteristic of me. What's an example of what you can think of that? Uh... Well, I'll, I'll give you two okay. relating to AT&T. One that worked out uh, immediately and one that did not. Does that, that help? Yes. Okay, so I had was working here in Washington at a small company I was president of, not relevant. And I got a phone call from a recruiter for the chairman of AT&T. And the chairman had asked him to get me to come up and see him. I didn't know him. His name was Bob Allen. And so I drove up there. And we get there. And he has me meet with his HR guy. And I had a vision of HR people because I've worked in a number of companies. Then I met this fellow and he was brilliant and great company. And we talked for six hours. He had run almost every line section of the company before, but now he was in charge of executive human resources. And I think one of the real reasons of that was A, he was smart and B, we had this enormous union problem and he, he could talk to them and about it. Anyway, at the end of six hours, the chairman walks in and he says to me, what do you think? And I said, well, I, I was in the satellite business. 
I don't know much about AT&T. You were, you were chairman of ComSat. I wasn't chairman. I was CEO of CEO, ComSat General, okay. which right. was their domestic business. Okay, continue. And uh, I said to him, when you were forced to break up in 1983, you forced the local phone companies to take this cellular business. And I said, that was just a really dumb mistake. And he said to me, well, we hired McKinsey and company and paid them an $11.5 million and they told us it was going nowhere. And I said to him, this is the true recital of the conversation. I said, it just proves they're smarter than you. They got $11.5 million to give you bad <laughs> advice. And you gave away billions. And the chairman looks at me and he says, well, how did you know that they were wrong? I said, because I read a study uh, about Bell Labs. And from the time of the first telephone on the wall where you put your mouth up to the, the horn and had a one-foot cord to your ear, Bell Labs had a study of measuring the number of times the phone came off the hook and how long it stayed off the hook in proportion to the length of the cord. And the cord went from one foot to two foot to three feet, and they twisted it. That made it six feet. It went to six feet, and that made it 12. And the, and the growth was just unbelievable. The, a lot of it, women in the kitchen having to do her work, and she's walking around talking to her friends on a phone where the cord covers the distance. And they have, in the labs, been able to predict the revenue of AT&T for the last 20 years each year based on the average length of the cords of the phones that are out there. So the longer the cord, the longer the conversation. And it isn't even proportional. Well, and the more times it comes well, off the hook. Uh, you know, I, I was in the merger, so, merger and acquisition business, and I remember I had like a 45-foot cord so I could walk around the I was on the phone well, you see, all day long. should have been studying you. <laughs> well, the funny part of the study was that they would clip the cord back, and the guy would... Uh, he could walk around, then he's par parked at his desk, and he's got his foot on the, on, the, on the desk trying to talk on the phone. And many of the people in the labs didn't even know it was being done to them. They just adjusted to it. <laughs> so so, so you, yeah. you're sitting with the chairman, and you've made, you said you made a good decision. And what, what, what was the, what was, the what, was that the good, anyway? The bad decision elaborate. was yeah. he forced the local phone companies to take the cellular business. And that was their bad decision. Yeah. It sure was. Yeah. And he said, well, what do we do about it? And I said, well, there's a fellow out in Seattle named Craig McCaw who has cobbled together a lot of smaller cellular businesses, but if you add them all up, it's about the size of New York Tel and Al Verizon, and, uh, which is the largest cellular business. And I said, I think he would sell that business to you. And he said, right away, let's do it. Anyway, I, I left his office. He hadn't offered me a job or anything. <laughs> that's it. But that's that story. Well, can, in, just briefly, or maybe it's not brief, Craig McCaw, so he, just remarkable visionary, built this business. What's your take on the idea that some people thought, wait a second, you are the visionary. You created this thing out of thin air. And just as it's getting huge, you hand it off to bureaucracy. Do, where do you think we are today if Craig McCaw says, no way, I'm not selling for $11 billion. I'm going to continue to grow. I don't trust this in the hands of uh, where, well, where good ideas die. He said a variant of that. If that's, uh, I don't know what he'd say today, but he said a variant of that. 
when I finally did join AT&T, Bob Allen called me in and said, go buy 30% of Craig McCall. And I said, I won't even have a discussion with that. The last thing in the world he wants to do is sit around here in a boardroom arguing about what we're going to do with the sale or business. He's going to sell it all or he's not going to sell it to you. And uh, so the chairman took it away from me on the second day of my working there, and he said, I'm giving it to our CFO. And sometime later, the CFO came back and said, it can't be done. So we did, we bought McCall at a higher price than we would have than before. But Craig, it's just like a lot of individual entrepreneurs. They do what they want to do, and they get good at it. And his timing was very good on that one. You're, you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Dick Bodman and John Tamney, and we're talking about the early days of wireless, AT&T, Craig McCaw, and uh, good decisions and bad decisions made by AT&T then. Well, that's one that worked out well, my, quote, orthogonal idea, because nobody at AT&T was worrying about the problem at the time. Uh, worked out well. We got them. And anyway, then the next thing came up. I was on the executive committee. There was a 12-person executive committee. And you met every Monday basically on operational problems the whole day. Uh, but one day a month, one of the 12 had the whole day to their subject. And when my day came up, uh, I was sort of a hero in a sense that they, they really realized that cellular business was going to be great. Uh, but they didn't know me or necessarily trust my ideas. And I got up and I said, look, Bell Labs, DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Products or, uh, Association or whatever it's called, and uh, University of California at Santa Barbara and MIT have developed a thing called Packet Switching Network. And uh, I've gone out there to have a look at what they're doing with that, and the people at the lab tell me that they can make a phone call to London uh, for about eight cents a minute if you include the cost of the clothes of all the people in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> in in that charge and we are charging three dollars a minute and it brings us 25 billion dollars of free cash flow a year and I said my thought is that I think we can buy the core of this packet switching network from the National Science Foundation who's running out of money developing it with the, our scientists uh, for about 500 million I think OMB would okay that and uh, one of the people in the of the other 11 looks up and says earth to bodman <laughs> that was one that didn't start out so well with my orthogonal thought and the chairman said well what are you going to do with this and i said look you have two choices you try to shut this thing down and keep yourself alive because it'll ruin this company very quickly i think within one year if somebody comes out offering calls to London for two minutes, and it works, for, for, for uh, $2 a minute, and it works, our 25 billion free cash flow will disappear to zero mm -hmm. because we can't let people go or change our processes fast enough. The other thing you could do is compete with the United States Post Office, which is the only group around doing last mile delivery of, of messages, 
And I figured uh, that's a $60 billion business for them. They're losing money. And I've noticed that we spend around here somewhere between 50 and $20 every time we send a letter. Just why going around talking about that you get it typed, then you retype it or you change your mind, then it flutters around the building for approval, and then it goes. In the labs, it's instant. It's gone, and you can do it. Um, so he called me into his office afterwards. He said it didn't go very well. And I said, well, I suppose you could say it didn't go well for me, but you made a very nice deal for me, so you can let me go tomorrow, and I'm, I'm okay. Uh, however, uh, I think it's a mistake that you didn't pay attention to it. And he said, well, what do you really want to do? And I, I said, I want to start a venture capital fund and build that network, which is now called the Internet. Hmm. So Al Gore wasn't well, was the only this, person. You well, were that, that would have been 1992. 92, okay. Yeah. And he said, well, what do you need for this fund? And I said, well, $80 million for the first one. Uh, and he said, what are you going to do? Hire all our people from the labs? I said, no, I, I'm not going to go near the labs. I'm only going to hire people who used to work at the labs. And uh, I knew two of them who were in California. And uh, because if, if we get involved with these companies, I'll never be able to get co-investors in the companies. We can buy the company or we can buy their services at the same price as another buyer. But if we mess with them and they think I'm representing AT&T, mm -hmm. it's not going to work. Well, uh, just to cut that s story short, uh, seven years later, the money that AT&T had given me was worth $2.1 billion after tax. So, so you took it, it, you it, took 82? No, I'm going to give you a little in the middle, but the end of it was a nice story for everybody. So uh, the general counsel of the company, very smart guy, and uh, kind of baby-faced but brilliant, and he came in and he said, I can keep us from losing this $25 billion cash flow because I'm an expert with the regulators, and we can keep them from allowing this to happen for nine years. And when are you going to earn $25 million of free cash flow on this so-called Internet? And I said, people will, but I have no idea when. I just know this is something coming. And... Uh, and I knew if he could keep it nine, all the people in top management of the company would be gone by then, so they would pay attention to him. Well, in fact, he did keep it seven of the nine years, mm -hmm. and then it was all gone. So the end of that, in about 2000, I don't know, whenever Southwestern Bell bought out AT&T, it was two pieces. They paid $60 billion for the cellular business that we did get into for you know, about $15 billion or some number like that. And they paid $16 million for a company whose capital value was $240 billion when I joined the company. So that had gone all the way from there to nothing. We, we really lost the value to the business. So Southwestern Bell got it all. Well, tell us the story about uh, taking that $80 million, creating a venture capital fund with then AT&T, and then you later well, bought it out from AT&T. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll, all right, I'll, very quickly there. So... Uh, about two years after I started the fund, the my office was right across the hall from the chairman, so he called me in. And this again. is still Dick Allen? Bob Allen. Bob Allen, rather. Yeah. yeah. 
And Dick was a very good guy, but not in this world, <laughs> not in that world. And, we knew the other Dick yes. Allen. Good so, golfer. <laughs> uh, he called me in and he said, we're going to break the company up again. And I actually thought that was a pretty good idea. And uh, he said, but we won't have any need for a chief strategist or M&A guy for the company as a whole. They each will have to have its own and all that. I said, fine. And uh, he said, what do you want? And I said, well, I want another $150 million for the second fund. And he said, well, all of the companies will want a piece of that. And I said, fine, they can be our limited partners. And then that's a perfectly legitimate thing. And, and I said, uh, I'd like to be the general partner. He sold me the business for one buck. Took me six months to get it through that smart lawyer. <laughs> but we got it. So in May of 1996, there I was with the, the business. And uh, it was about $320 million from AT&T. And J.P. Morgan called up. And they said, we're new to venture capital. We'd like to invest in your business. And uh, I said, how much? And they said, oh, $20 million for a couple of funds. I said, forget it. Anyway, we ended up with 120 million for a domestic fund and 120 million for an international fund mm -hmm. that J.P. Morgan did, and uh, so all total, I had about what did I say, 520 something, whatever, whatever those mm -hmm. pieces add up to. So we were pretty big for being a small firm, and we made the decision to invest all of our funds into the same deals, so we could go to somebody and proposed real money. We could compete against the big guys. And uh, the timing was amazing. In 2001, we, we had invested in 66 companies. 22 we took public. 22 we sold to people like IBM and others. And 22 we, we just thought we'd hang on to. We didn't know what to do with them. And one of them went public and did very well. So. Our, our IRR, if that means anything to you, for the 12 years of those last two funds was 101%. So it was just terrific. Uh, okay, for those that don't know IRR, it's one of these arcane measures, but really matters. It's how much money you've made on the money you start with. Yeah. And doing 101% means you double your money every... And how long they had to wait for it. Now, Cash on but, cash is the term they talk but about you, now. But you sold, but you, timing's pretty important. You sold the business, most of the businesses pre-dot-com crash. Yeah, we had the internet pretty well built. Yeah. And so we would have to change our investment model a little bit. And we knew what we were doing when we were building the internet, and we knew how to, we knew what a better router was that uh, that was just really easy decision making all we needed to do was get our way into the deal uh, but after that people started to do other things and like what are we going to put on the internet and that was a riskier business at that time so we didn't go forward and, and keep investing after we sold all those businesses we you we talked about your three decision rules number one following signs second orthogonal Thinking. Well, that's just the way it was, and, not and, a decision rule. And the third one was partners. Oh, well, that's, that's the most important one of all. And I was going to ask you, who, who is all. the we here in this? Because you, you, you've always well, credited in, people in with everything, ability to spot people to work with. In everything that I've been a part of the success of, I've had a partner that I knew was more capable and more energetic than I was. 
including my wife. That's, that's, is at that's the hard top to of, It's the top of the list, but it's true. <laughs> so, and I've just always felt that way. So when I, way back at the Touche Ross days, when I decided to go into consulting, I actually had a boss who was a, a manager, and I'm a junior guy, but I went out and got the business. I just always liked working with people that I thought were really capable and who worked hard at it. Mm-hmm. When I was at ComSat, we actually, one of my guys came up with the idea of direct broadcast from satellite to home. And it was a great business. But uh, anyway. So, yeah. so you, you formed the fund in 96, and by, I don't remember when well, the market we, we collapsed. We formed the last fund in 96. No, last one in 96. Yeah. And then you, you liquidated, though, most of the portfolio. 2000, 2001, yeah. What did you see? Then did you see the bubble bursting? Did you see the, the No, I had a tremendous amount of cash in my bank accounts that I never thought I'd ever make in my life. Yeah. And uh I thought, well, I think what I'd like to do is do things one at a time. Yeah. And I, I moved to Washington D C and uh brought in a couple of partners, uh both of which were more capable than I was in what they did. And that's when I learned a second lesson. Doing things one at a time is much more difficult than investing in a group of companies. Why? Because if you cherry pick, if there are 20 companies and you've decided to invest in them all, if it's a, a good fund, you only need to have two or three winners, believe it or not. Uh, so in the router business, uh, there was another company called Juniper that came out with a router that was much faster than Cisco's. We invested in it at 75 cents and got $320 a share out mm. for that. And that's what I mean. If you've got a group, one of them can, doesn't have to take very many to be great winners. But when you start cherry pick and say, I'm going to only invest in this and work at this, you, there's too many things that can go wrong to to give you great odds of success unless you're just a really good manager yourself, which I didn't consider myself. I, uh, I thought I had good ideas, but I hated to sit down and do them. <laughs> you're watching The Bill Walton yeah. Show. I'm here with Dick Bodman and John Tamney, and we're talking about Dick's uh, timing and success in the venture capital business and uh, going to learn more a little bit about his, his uh his life on public company boards. Along the way, you were, you were on the board of Tyco. Yes. And that was a fabulously successful company. We were about to do some joint ventures with them in Allied Capital. And then everything came apart. What? Well, uh, first I'll tell you what happened. I joined the board in 1992. I got a call out of the blue from Chairman yeah. Kozlowski. I didn't know him. But it turned out that a former AT&T vice president had been on the board for some years when it was a small company, uh, it started to get bigger. And I asked Bob if I could join this board, which I did. And it grew like topsy. And uh, although I, it grew very carefully because Dennis was a pretty good acquirer of businesses and he managed pretty well. Uh, but uh, in 2000, I, can't, I think it was 2000, uh, we were looking through the proxy statement that we were about to issue and there was a sentence in there that, that the company had paid $10 million to one of the directors for help with an acquisition. Mm. And uh, I didn't find it. Uh, another guy had found it. 
And we had a board meeting two days later, and I spoke up. I said, look, this is wrong. You go pay a director $10 million to help you do this. He can't be a director of this company, and he should put that money back. And Dennis, the chairman, looked at me, and he said, if you go after him, you're going after me, because I'm the other side of the deal. So and they I, didn't name and, the director I, in the footnote, but he was the director that got paid the $10 well, million? Well, we knew who it was, oh, you, but, okay. but I didn't know that he'd gotten it. He was actually a pretty good guy. And anyway, the chairman said, then you're coming after me, and I said, so be it. And I testified in two trials, not about that issue. That wasn't anything that was ever a part of the issue. But uh, it turned out that all the things that Dennis Kozlowski had been accused of doing or had done were literally peanuts. Uh, Tyco had the lowest overhead of any company that size that I could find at the time. And he had bought an apartment in New York because they moved from New Hampshire to New York and charged it to the company. And it was a nice apartment and all that stuff. But in fact, when everything was all finished, they sold it at a profit. And, and the other things didn't cost anybody anything. And it just was a credibility issue. So our market value was really hurt. Uh, and Dennis was just about to break up the company anyway. So... That's what happened. But there were two trials that I was a part of, and uh, the one against Dennis, and, and the other uh, involved our general counsel who should have advised him and us otherwise. We lost the trial against the general counsel. We won it against Dennis. And then just a funny, no, no, a serious adjunct to this. After Dennis had been in jail for three or four years, and the CFO, the attorneys for all sides, there were 45 of them, called me up and asked if I'd put my tie on and let them interview me for a day to review this case. And I didn't know at the time that each of those attorneys had gone to see the folks in prison. Both sides, the prosecutors and the defenders, when they got to the prison said, there is no way those two people should be in prison. This is one of the worst prisons there are, and uh, this is just wrong. Anyway, uh, I haven't talked to Dennis since he got out. He obviously didn't end up particularly friendly, but he did get out uh, early, and I assume has gone back to some kind of productive life. Is there, a, uh, is there a governance question there? Is there a capital allocation question? I remember... Back to your theory, it's harder to make money with one thing than it is with many. They had a very interesting portfolio of companies that collectively did pretty well. And I, it, uh, it struck me as a pretty good business model. Not at all like the, there were three big failures there, Enron, WorldCom, and, and Tyco was in the yeah, headlines. Tyco, Enron, but Enron and, and WorldCom were, outright were frauds. And they were companies that were just out of control managed. That was not true at Tyco. Yeah, All that, three that was, of our major my, businesses yeah. were very good business and yeah. run very well. And the people who ran them for Dennis, uh, a little bit more like the way Charles Koch runs his company, the people that ran those businesses knew a lot about Dennis's belief about management and had tremendous freedom to run those businesses as well as they could, and they did well at it. So the perception's and, unfair. He really was 
a brilliant CEO? Or how would you well, conclude? Uh, oh, yes, he was. But in the end, he wasn't. When he, he went from New Hampshire to New York, in New Hampshire, he was an undiscovered god because he was building this giant company up there. When he got down to New York, with all this excitement and action, and he started to buy some art, and he yeah. had it shipped to New Hampshire instead of getting it taxed to New York, and he bought this apartment, and he didn't charge it to the company. And as I said, the whole cost of it was really nothing from the company's perspective, but his credibility and his reputation were killed. Yeah, he, two and, things and, I and the New York offices were palatial. Remember the well, great view of Central Park? It was yeah, course, but you know, five, ten other companies in the same building. Yeah, Tyco at that time was a giant company. But yeah. uh, anyway, it just it, he changed. I think that was yeah. my my. Message. It was a, it was. The, the going through the trials uh, were, was very interesting to me. And secondly, first place I had enough money, I didn't need to worry about it because of the venture business. But the, the other thing was I learned more about how the legal system worked than I ever thought I would. Uh, nobody cared. I'm not even sure the judge did who was right. It was only who won. Hmm. It was a highly competitive process and they used all sorts of deceptive means to get witnesses to say things that they didn't mean. One of which that was most interesting is about this question of whether it was legal to pay a director money. The defense guy got up and when I was on the stand and he starts out and he reads the first sentence of this paragraph that says, it is legitimate to pay a director money for services. And he stopped and he said, isn't that true? And I, I said, read the rest of the sentence. And the rest of the sentence said, only if all the rest of the directors have understood the issue and agreed with it. And that's the kind of thing that happened in court all the time. They tried to get you to say something that is not what you meant. So. That was a learning experience for me. You're watching The Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Dick Bogman and John Tamney, and we're learning uh, lessons learned from Tyco, and uh, fascinating. Dick, once you sold the fund, you moved to uh, Washington, which is where you and I met, and you've gotten more involved in, in technology, specifically research on aging and, and immunology. You're on the director of the Buck Institute for Research in Aging, and the Hoya Institute for Immunology. I understand on the, the website that the aging, uh, the Buck people think that we ought to live a life as vigorous at age 95 as we do at 25. They would say, we'd rather have you live healthier longer. Okay. Because they don't want to be thought of as telling you you can live forever even if they believe they can. I think they are beginning to believe that aging is a disease. And like any disease, it can be mitigated or held off, not necessarily eliminated, but it can be put in remission. So your first statement is right, but there's just a tremendous amount of science going on in that. And the La Jolla Institute, while not in any way related uh, to the book, is their mission is life without disease, that we can teach our immune systems that it's seen diseases. And once it's seen it, 
it'll attack the beginnings of a disease before you ever know you've got it. And you can, you can stop these diseases. So they're both doing things to help us live longer and healthier. And I'm very, very involved with and impressed with them both. Uh, though I'm just about to resign from one because it's more than I can cope with right now. One thing on, the, on this, so the, with venture capital, as you say, you, tr you tried with a lot of companies, three can make up for a lot of failures. How does that square with an institute like this? Are, can institutes be as entrepreneurial in this way? Don't, they, don't we need similar failure in the aging process, learning about it to get to the quicker, better answers? Or They, they have them every day. Each, both of these two institutes, and by the way, they're, they're Mass General, Stanford, they all do a lot of really good research on these subjects, but they, they aren't just specialized in, in what we do. And in these labs, they're having failures all the time. And so it, they, that's how it works. That's the scientific method. You, if you can't test it, then your theory isn't any good. It's got to be tested before you can say it's a good one. Can I ask uh, you, John, a question? Absolutely. All right. Uh, John, it's your turn. You're, no. no, no. You're, you're, you're on the grill. Your books and your, your, your concept that the, these scientific advances lead to more rather than less employment. And I absolutely agree. In fact, I wrote my thesis at Princeton that uh, automation would be good for employment. Uh, I'm not a very good writer, but I did all right and got out of there fine. But I really believe what you're saying is, is really right on the macro scale. But the local disruptions can be terrible. Detroit is a really good example. We just averted a big problem in, in Detroit with this strike that's going on because there are a lot of people working in those factories now whose jobs won't be necessary. And if, certainly if they switch to electric motors, if you buy an electric motor and an and a internal combustion engine has about 1,400 parts in it that you've got to put together. You just don't need that many workers. So some people are very, very threatened. And because of the internet, the whole world can know in minutes that some little group is really upset and demonstrating, and you see it every night. So it fosters this disruption around the world. So I would love to see something that you've done or worked on to help us get through this transitory period, because you can't instantly retrain the folks that are doing it. But it clearly will add to much greater employment. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think. I don't do research as much as I theorize, um, but my response to that is you went to, Cal when you went to California after MIT, you witnessed a manufacturing economy. Uh, in the 1930s and 40s, New York and California were one in four manufacturing cities. Flint and Detroit were two and three. My argument always is that a closed factory or many closed factories can never kill a city. What kills a city is the departure of people like you. California and New York thrive today because people like you went there and continue to go there. And where talent is, jobs are endless. I would say Detroit and Flint, the tragedy is that the jobs stayed too long. 
that the old way of doing things because factories were not appealing to people like you. You grew up in Michigan but left. And so I think the answer is that it's not as disruptive. What's disruptive is, is the departure of talent, never the departure of, of a way of working. Well, the disruption, I, I think, as again, on the macro point of view, I really believe that's true. But when you've got 400,000 workers who are literally put out of a job, who are not trained for the new world, and the new world hasn't emerged yet in Detroit, uh, you've got a problem on your hand, particularly if the whole world can see it in 20 minutes because it's spread all over the internet. Mm -hmm. That wasn't true when I was in college. Mm -hmm. Detroit and Flint had, had problems, but I, I thought we could work them through uh, because it didn't become a global problem overnight. Mm -hmm. But I really think you're on a, an important subject. Now, are you thinking a lot about artificial intelligence? I think about it, but I think about it in terms of I view this all as one and the same thing, just ways for, for technology to free us from work. I agree. Uh, so that we can focus on what's important. But we have a new problem with this. And it's not that we should not do this. But when uh, Moore was heading uh, Intel, he came up with the idea that we can double the speed of a microprocessor every year. That was Moore's Law, which uh, we're still performing on. Artificial intelligence is growing at a thousand times a year. There's absolutely no chart, long or not, where it just doesn't go straight up in a vertical strike right about now. Chinese are already using artificial intelligence. They've got bands they put around the kids' heads while they're in the classroom, and they can tell when they're learning fast and when they're not. Uh, and there isn't anything you could imagine that probably won't happen. We might all have a chip in our head that'll do a lot of our storage and thinking I just had mine fitted last week. You? you haven't well, got, you haven't. I, uh, frankly, I haven't I'm noticed any difference. I'm waiting though. I'm, uh, I'm going to follow if you. If I were you, me. I'd turn the switch on on your other ear. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is serious because it's, we always, and I think to Dick's point, we always make the case where well, we started, we were agrarian, we had 90% of our people on the farms, they went to towns and went in factories. Well, as people found jobs, then the factories went out of business, people found jobs doing other things. But at some point, the productivity boom or, or, or gains, it seems like you're just squeezing the number of jobs that people are actually doing, and you might end up with an awful lot of people on a guaranteed annual um, income, which is the fashionable remedy they, they have in, in uh, Silicon Valley. Thoughts? I just, I see it the opposite way. I just think if Moore's law is obsolete because it's not fast enough, the productivity gains in the future are going to be unbelievable. Yes. If, if, if coal, if the discovery of coal was the equivalent of giving every worker 20 assistants full-time working for them, what do these advances mean in terms of hands that free us to do things that we never imagined doing. And so I do not think it's going to be a problem for a lack of jobs. I think it will be a problem for, look, there's always going to be some people who are just, who choose not to be mobile, who choose not to move to where the opportunity is. But the opportunity is going to be endless. And, and how we know this is let's look at the parts of the world bereft of this technology, bereft of all these, of this, of this job destruction. It's not as though those are happy places full of people who are living uh, wonderful lives. In fact, where do people move? 
They're constantly moving. The purest market signal of all is human migration. And they're constantly moving to where jobs are being destroyed the most quickly. And I, I don't see why this would change with, but, with but, AI. But it, it, but it does seem like the pace of change is just so much. If, we're, if artificial intelligence is doubling a thousand times a year. Uh, yeah, not, not yeah, it's speed a thousand up. times a growth year. That's right. And, you know, I talk, we, we talked about the agrarian economy moving, the manufacturing company move, economy moving to the service economy. That took a century. And then it took five decades. And it took you know, the, the, the span of time it takes to make these changes is growing shorter and shorter and shorter. In the meantime, you got all of us analog people that are trained in one thing or another. We not, may not be able to make the switch to the, uh, to the new productivity tools. Well, the good news is we're not at great risk. The except, three of us, the three of us except at the from the government stealing our money to give it to the people who they haven't figured out what to do with. But that's another issue. Uh, That's the, a whole the, other show. One of, one, of, <laughs> one of the problems that we do have that is real is education. And I, I, I'm going to be very specific about this. When I was younger, uh, I was a good student. I even skipped the 11th grade high school. Uh, but I knew I didn't know much. I, 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 I somehow figured out how to get by. And... Uh, Life has turned out well. And I got thinking, with all this acceleration of knowledge now, we haven't got time to write textbooks, train teachers, and teach students about this before they're living in the new world. Well, that was somewhat the case when we were younger. Computers were coming along. I never learned anything about computers in school. I kind of learn it as you live with it. And these young kids now go into Apple stores at age two and they sit down and they're starting, and I mean this, at age two and they sit down and they just fuss with the screen and they start to have a good time. So I think this education is a big problem and we're going to spend a lot of money on it, but we need to figure out how we get these kids exposed to the things we're trying to teach them without spending a lot of time writing books to learn to teach them and training teachers. Well, I just don't think we need to presume that we need to. That's Education is daycare. Point. You certainly had 11 careers. Nothing you learned at Princeton and MIT had anything to do with it. Bill is an amazing investment banker. As you said, when you were, when you were in your element, it was just this happy thing for you. It was reinforcing everything about you. I really like my 45-foot phone cord. Yeah. I really enjoy yeah, it. That's pretty cute. <laughs> Bill got into the office. We've discussed this so many times. Bill wa walked into the office and thought, I'm the biggest superstar here. And a lot. Of, well, no, no. It, Steve Schwarzman was yeah, okay, down okay, the hallway. Fine. <laughs> but there's no way that he didn't it, think no. that. School That's didn't good. teach you this. <laughs> you still have that 45-foot cord? I do I somewhere. I'll pull it out. <laughs> I think you could sell it or give I it do, to a yeah. museum and make Double a Double my money. revenue. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, well... This always happens. We just start wandering into something <laughs> extremely interesting, AI education and, and uh, my career in mergers and acquisitions, and <laughs> we've run out of time. So Dick Bodman, founder of AT&T Ventures, very successful venture capitalist, a big thinker. Thanks for joining. And John Tamney, Thanks thank you me. for joining. John, I, we've got to create a quick shameless plug for your book. We've yeah, got a couple of books this here. This is not for We just free. happen to this have the book here. Let me have this a, here. It's good. Yes. Um, Highly recommended. We talked about this in a show a couple weeks ago. John Tamney's, uh, they're both wrong. 
and to find out who they is, I suggest you first buy the book. And uh, but it has something to do with politics, and it has something to do with Democrats and Republicans. Question: Is it coming out in Audible? Uh, it's coming out in Kindle, and maybe I, I'm not sure about Audible yet. Well, for, you want to crest these pages for dyslexics like me. Uh-huh. Uh, I listen to 160 or 70 books a year on Audible on my iPhone, mm-hmm. and uh, if I read that book. Because of the speed of my reading, it would probably take me two weeks. And you can't do 160 of those a year. But so, I will. So I'd love to, I know we've got to close it. the show, but I've yeah. got to ask this question. Now, do you crank it up to like 8x to listen to it? No, 1.25. No? 1.25. <laughs> okay. Because I have a friend that cranks it up to 8x. Yeah, well... Don't drive he's, when he's listening to a he's book. He's even more orthogonal than you are. <laughs> orthogonal. <laughs> orthogonal. Okay. I'll okay. Get pronunciation. Okay. Well, that's it for now. Uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you back on the next Bill Walton Show. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes.